Amen. Well, we're in a seven-week series on our core values, our DNA, what it is that we want to be about as a church, as a family of faith. And last week, we looked at the first one, the most important one really is a summary of all of them, and is that is we want to worship Jesus in all of life. We want to center our life around him. And the second core value we're going to look at this morning is that we want to be ruled by God's word. And we wanted a strong word for this core value. And so the word ruled is intentional. The word of God is our rule. It is our standard. We structure our life as individuals and as a church around it. And so we want to be a people characterized by humble and glad submission to the Holy Scriptures. The Bible tells us that Jesus Christ is the head of the body, that is the church. He is the head. He is the supreme one. And he rules the church through his word. So we want to be a church faithful to Jesus. And if we want to be a church faithful to Jesus, we must be a church faithful to his word, faithful to the scripture. So we're looking at 2 Timothy this morning, as we've already read. If you're using one of our pew Bibles, it's page 936. And I want us to consider what scripture is, what it's for, and what it does. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 15. First, what Scripture is. Paul to Timothy, by the Holy Spirit, and says, How from childhood you've been acquainted, Timothy, with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Notice what scripture is. What does Paul call it here to Timothy? He calls it the sacred writings. That's why we call it the Holy Bible. They're sacred because they're about God. They're about God and his ways and his word and his world. But they're sacred also because their origin is in God. This is God's word. This is no mere book. This is no man-made book. It has a dual authorship, divine and human. What does Paul say here? All scripture is God-breathed. Maybe your Bible, the King James, King Jimmy said it like this, all scripture is given by inspiration. Maybe it says inspired in that way. I don't really like that word just because it can be confusing, right? We can be inspired in various ways. It can be a concert or a good actor can inspire us. That's not what the word means here, though. It's actually a word that Paul makes up. Theopneustos. Theos, you hear that word theos for God? And then neustos is our word for spirit. And so it's, or breath, either one. And so it's breathed out by God. I think that's actually better. That's why most of the modern translations go with that. It's breathed out. This scripture is breathed out by God. It comes ultimately from him. That's what he says. Yes, humans wrote it, but they were led by God to produce a God-breathed text. I really like the way another passage in Peter compliments this one. This one says, all scripture is breathed out by God. But listen to what 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says. It says, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So here he's speaking of scripture, 
And again, we learn that its origin is not ultimately from humanity, but from divine. It's from the Lord. Men spoke as they were carried along by the Spirit. And so God the Spirit moved the writers of Scripture to produce a God-breathed text. So God is the author and the source of Scripture. And Paul says all Scripture, all Scripture is breathed out by God. We hold to a theory that theologians call verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, verbal, words, plenary, fullness, or all of it are inspired. We believe that every word is inspired. Believe that all Scripture is breathed out by God, as he says right here. No selective inspiration, no pick and choose. And of course, here, what's he talking about? What scripture is he talking about? Well, the recipients of this letter were just now receiving 2 Timothy, right? So he's talking about the Old Testament. But even in the New Testament, we already have the writers of scripture calling other writers of the New Testament scripture. So listen to 2 Peter 3.16. Peter's talking about Paul. And he says this, there are some things in them, talking about Paul's writings, there are some things in them that are hard to understand. Can I get an amen? We've been in Romans 9, 10, and 11, right? Which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. So here's Peter talking about Paul's writing being distorted as the other scriptures are sometimes distorted by false teachers. So already... When Peter's writing 2 Peter, Paul's writings are on the level of Scripture. We have the same thing in 1 Timothy 5.18. We have Paul, and he quotes the Gospel of Luke, and he calls it Scripture, 1 Timothy 5.18. So all Scripture, Old Testament and New Testament, breathed out by God. Listen to the way our confession describes our view of the Bible, the Baptist faith and message. It puts it this way. It says, the Holy Bible, sacred writings... The Holy Bible was written by men, divinely inspired, and is God's revelation of himself to man. It is a perfect treasure of divine instruction. It has God for its author, salvation for its end, and truth without any mixture of error for its matter. Therefore, all scripture is totally true and trustworthy. It reveals the principles by which God judges us and therefore is and will remain to the end of the world, the true center of Christian union and the supreme standard by which all human conduct, creeds, and religious opinions should be tried. All scripture is a testimony to Christ who is himself the focus of divine revelation. It's a great summary of what the Bible teaches about the Bible. That's why we believe it. We're not making this up. We're holding to the view that the Bible itself sets forth. And sadly, friends, for the last 150 years, the Bible's been attacked. And even more sadly, that the primary assault on the word of God has come from people who call themselves Christians. Some of you have experienced that in liberal Christian universities. Some of you have had Bible profs. Some of you may now have Bible profs that seek to undermine the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. And it makes you wonder, why would you give your life to something that which you don't believe and love? It's constantly been attacked from day one for centuries. But as we read in Isaiah, the flowers fade and the grass withers, but the Word of God stands forever. The attacks have always been there, and they won't be going anywhere. I've shared with you before, Voltaire. Voltaire was this famous French atheist, very, very sharp, 
philosopher, he really did not like the Bible. And so he would write a lot of little tracts and whatnot discrediting the Bible. And he once made this statement, 100 years from today, the Bible will be a forgotten book. And most people have forgotten that quote. Ain't nobody forgotten the Bible. What's ironic, though, is after Voltaire died, about 100 years after his home, his whole homestead was used as a book depository for the Geneva Bible Society. They sold and stored Bibles out of his house. What is Scripture? It's God's Word. It's a God-breathed book. Second, what is Scripture for? What's its purpose? And just in these verses alone, we see five of them. First, we see that the Scriptures show us how to be saved. Look at verse 15. How from childhood you've been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. The scriptures are able to make us wise for salvation. And I think actually that this is talking about future salvation. The way we can know how to be saved in the future, the way we can live a life based in faith that leads to ultimate salvation. I say that because he uses the same word for salvation in the future sense, future tense in chapter 2, verse 10. Look across the page. Talking about his ministry, he says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, God's chosen, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's talking about them finishing well. The Bible can talk about salvation in three tenses. Past tense, we have been saved definitively through the finished work of Jesus Christ. The scriptures can speak of the present tense, though we are being saved as we work out our salvation and God works in us and through us, but also we will be saved. And I think that's what he means here. The scripture is what gives us the wisdom we need for salvation. Therefore, sort of important, isn't it? It's absolutely vital. And remember, he's talking here about the Old Testament. The Old Testament shows us the wisdom to gain salvation through Jesus Christ. Again, the Old Testament is a messianic book through and through. It's a hymn book, H-I-M. It's all about Jesus. Fulfills the law and prophets, as we just sang. Culminates in the king. Makes the way for the Messiah. Shows us how to be saved. Second, what is the scripture for? It's profitable for teaching. Look in verse 16 again. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. The scriptures are profitable. They're useful. They're beneficial. It's from the creator of the universe. Of course it's profitable. The God who made us has disclosed his will to us through his word. So it's profitable. And it's profitable here for teaching. It's the same word. Maybe your translation says doctrine. It teaches us what to believe about God what to believe about the world, what to believe about ourselves. Third, the scriptures are profitable, he says in verse 16, for reproof. To reprove is to warn against the error, errors of belief and errors of behavior. It reproves our faulty thinking, and we need this. This is why we need regular engagement with the Word of God. We need regular reproof. Why? Because, one, we're prone to wander because of our own faulty thinking, but also because the world is pushing a different message, right? Discipleship is always happening. There's no neutrality in this world. A message, an agenda, 
A plan of salvation, a plan for the good life, a vision of what should matter is always being portrayed to us through media, through the world, through friends, sometimes our own heart. So we need reproof. As we engage God's word, the spirit reproves us. It warns us that the way of the world leads to destruction. It tells us not to trust in ourselves. Be suspicious of ourselves, suspicious of the world. It reproves us when we're walking wrongly as well, not just thinking. The scripture will not simply affirm and confirm where we are. The spirit will convict us of sin. The message of scripture is often hard. It's not always fluffy. It's not always comfortable. God will get in our business regularly if we will get in the word. So it reproves us. Fourth, the scriptures are profitable, it says, for correction. To correct is to redirect. It's very similar. Again, because we're prone to wander like sheep. We tend to go astray and the word corrects us. It shows us the right way. Corrects faulty teaching. And we need this today. A lot of faulty teaching out there. But listen, friends, it's nothing new. It's always been that way. In fact, in this very book, he tells us that. Look how he begins chapter 3. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. And notice as I read these, the emphasis on love. In many ways, as Augustine said, sin is just our love in the wrong place. But there is love. Another way of talking about that is worship. People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Kids, did you hear that? Disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. Or as Katie read for us in chapter 4, verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into mist. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist. So it's a need today, but it was a need in the first century. Indeed, it was, it was a need long before the New Testament. Listen to the way the, the prophet Isaiah speaks of the people in chapter 30. All stubborn children, declares the Lord who carry out a plan, but not mine, who make an alliance, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin, who set out to go down to Egypt without asking for my direction, to take refuge in the protection of Pharaoh and to seek shelter in the shadow of Egypt. That's Isaiah 31 and 2. And then verse 9, for they are rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall, bulging out and about to collapse, whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant. So even way back then, the people didn't want to hear 
They didn't want the teachers to teach, the seers to see, the prophets to prophesy. Don't tell us what is right. We don't want to hear that. Tell us smooth things. Let's let us know here about the Holy One of Israel. Don't talk about the hard parts. Don't get in my grill. Make it easy. Tone it down. Tickle our ears. This is the scary part here is the issue is not so much that they don't understand what God's saying. It's that they do understand what God's saying. They don't want to submit their wills to the word of God. They don't want to be ruled by God's word. But one of the purposes of scripture is to give us much needed correction. Fifth, it says the scriptures are profitable for training in righteousness. Look again at verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. So the scripture trains us it shows us the right way to live trained in righteousness it forms our hearts first and then therefore our lives it shapes our identity it tells us whose we are and who we are and where we are and where we are going and it changes us this is why we're so committed to this thing God promises to work through it we're about life change. That's what we've been celebrating this morning. And God says, the means by which I change lives is this book accompanied by the power of the spirit. It's all over the place. Jesus is praying in John 17. And what does he pray? Father, sanctify them, my disciples, by the truth. Your word is truth. The son of God himself is praying to the father. Would you change them? Would you sanctify them? Would you shape them? And the means by which he will do that is the word. Or in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. A context, again, about the Old Testament, he says that one of the ways that we are transformed, that's what we're talking about, life change, life transformation, one of the ways is by beholding the glory of the Lord found in the Old Testament, found is the reading of the Old Covenant, that's what it says in 2 Corinthians 3. So we are, we are transformed. We become like him as we behold him in the scriptures. It trains us in righteousness. It changes us. Or in 1 Peter, one of my favorite passages about the word, 1 Peter commands every believer to long for the pure spiritual milk of the word, like a newborn baby. How did a newborn's baby long for milk? Fervently, ferociously, fiercely. So that, chapter 2, verse 2, by it, by it, you may grow up into salvation. It's really similar to what Paul says here, trained in righteousness, wise for salvation. Shows us about the righteous life. And the righteous life, friends, is the way life is meant to be lived. Just think of the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians chapter 5. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. Isn't that the kind of person you want to be? Isn't that the kind of people you like to be around? I think all too often we substitute righteous for self-righteous. We hear righteous and we think of Ned Flanders. Think of judgmentalism. We think of nasty people. That's not the righteous life. That's the self-righteous life. And I'm with you there. No one likes to be about, around self-righteous people. It's so just appalling, unattractive. I'd rather clean the floor of an outhouse at the fair than be around self-righteous people. <laughs> but righteous people are the fruit of the Spirit. They bring life to a room. It's the good life. 
trains us in righteousness. Think about that word train. It trains us. It's January. Everybody's at the gym. I'm ready for February. Make a little room. Getting crowded now. Come on, man. That's my bench, bro. You're going to be gone in six weeks anyway. Just go ahead and go home. Training is often hard. That's why in February the gym clears out. It's hard, but it yields results. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way because it holds promise for this life and the life to come. So to be ruled by God's word is the path to the good life now and the good life to come, eternal life. The path to human flourishing. Because here's the deal, friends. Our creator knows best how his creation ought to function. His way is the blessed way, which remember that word blessing in our Old Testament, it just means happy. Right before the very first command in scripture, we read this. God blessed them and said to them. And first command is to be fruitful and multiply. God blessed and commanded. God's commands are a blessing. God's commands are the good life. God's commands lead to happiness. Do you believe that? Every command is an invitation to the blessed life. Just to give one example, the Bible is filled with commands regarding human sexuality. It's one of the ways increasingly which the Christian faith is going to be seen as unpopular in our day. The world says, see, God is just a killjoy. And it shows that they don't know the God of the Bible because the very first command of the Bible is to be fruitful and multiply. God's just a killjoy. He doesn't want his people happy. But in reality, the commands regarding human sexuality are meant to guard that which is most precious. Guard that which is a gift from him, something precious beyond words. And he wants us to fully enjoy it. And he knows that we only will fully enjoy it when we live within his way. Commands protect us from settling for less than he offers. Commands always have a corresponding promise. Do not do this because I promise my way is better. Psalm 1, so important. Psalm 1 kicks off the whole Psalter. Psalm 1 verse 1, blessed. And again, that means happy. Happy is the one who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. Blessed, happy, fruitful, prosperous. The good life, the righteous life. So the God-breathed scriptures make us wise for salvation. It teaches us, it reproves us, it corrects us, and it trains us in how to be righteous. So scripture is sufficient. Scripture is sufficient for creed and conduct. Sufficient for the way we think and the way we live. And friends, what happens when we don't? When we don't let God rule us through his word, well, then we won't be given the wisdom to know the path of salvation. We won't have right teaching and right thinking. We'll lack reproof. We won't be corrected. Therefore, we will drift. 
We won't be trained in righteousness. We won't live the good life. Church, we want to be a people ruled by God's word, submitting every area of our life to the rule of King Jesus through his written word. And I can't just help but stop and just say how proud I am of Southside Baptist Church, how well you characterize being ruled by God's word. I get to brag on y'all regularly, especially when I'm out and about with other pastors and so many are having so many problems. They're so glad Southside, if you got a verse, they're good. They follow the word. They want to honor God through his word. So many unhealthy churches out there. And the most important characteristic of a healthy church is a glad submission to the word of God. And that's you. Third, what does scripture do? That's what scripture's for. Third, what does scripture do? Look at verse 17. So that the man of God may be complete equipped for every good work. The scripture completes us and equips us. This word complete means to make us well-fitted, to make us capable, to make us proficient, to make us able to meet whatever comes our way. And it's really similar to the word equips. Sometimes they just make it one word, thoroughly equips, completely equips. Scripture equips us. It gives us what we need. It readies us and it readies us for every good work, for all that we need. The way Peter puts it, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. All things that pertain to to life and to godliness. Scripture is sufficient. So what does a life that's ruled by God's word look like? I think personally it means that we should have a high view of God's word. Flip over to chapter 1, verse 13. If we've got a high view, that means at times we're going to have to defend this book. Chapter 1, verse 13, he says, Follow the pattern of the sound words. That word sound can often be translated healthy. Sound words that you've heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit entrusted to you. The good deposit is the Christian doctrine that's been passed on. It's what now is our New Testament. So have a high view of it and guard that good deposit. Let's keep the teaching sound. Let's keep it healthy. Let's have a high view of God's word. Psalm 138 two. you have exalted above all things your name and your word. And again, sadly, many, many, many Christians have lost confidence both in the truthfulness and in the sufficiency of scripture. And we need to affirm both. It is the norming norm. Because God is the author, because God is the source of this word, you can build your life on it. That's why I tell Timothy, you can build your ministry on it. The attacks will come. In fact, they probably only get worse. Keep believing. What does he say there in chapter 3, verse 14? As for you, continue in what you have learned and firmly believed. Keep on believing. Have a high view of it. Also, be grateful. Be grateful for this word. What a gift we have. God has spoken and it is written. Oh, that ought to warm our hearts every time we say it. Grateful that we serve a God who has spoken. There's a video on YouTube. Many of you have probably seen it of the Kimyal tribe in Indonesia. And uh, missionaries had come. They had reached a village. They had part of the New Testament in their own language. They didn't have the whole New Testament, though, and there's a video of them receiving a copy of the Word of God for the very first time. It was about 10 years ago. 
And so the planes are coming in on this little, you know, dirt airstrip, and they dare not wait in their little villages for the boxes to come. What do they do? They have a party. And they go out and they greet. They're on the landing strip. They're lined up. They're not waiting. They're singing, waiting for the plane, garb dressed up, all the headdresses and bones and feathers and singing, Jesus loves me. And they finally get the boxes out of the plane. A few of the older leaders, pastors slowly, reverently approach that plane. They receive the boxes and they stop. Hey, we're going to pray. It's a beautiful sight. You've got all these old men and women just weeping because they've got the New Testament in their own language. And they pray, God has given us this gift. We've received the word of God, all of his word now in our language. Meanwhile, can't we take it for granted? Got them stacked up. Don't ever open them. Charles Spurgeon Prince of Preacher said, some of you got so much dust on the top of your Bible cover, you could spell condemnation with it, with your fingers. Have a high view. Be grateful for it. If you have a family, commit to family worship. We're going to continue to pound this drum. We got kiddos, do family worship. Read, sing, pray. Read the Bible with them. Aim for every day. Sing a song, pray with them. Make it just the culture of your home. Deuteronomy 6, speaking of the word, these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. That's hard work. Diligence to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. Teach your kids to love the Bible. Teach them the content of the Bible. Teach them a high view of the Bible. I remember a few years ago, there was a panel, a panel discussion, and it was all these pastor theologians, and they were talking about just the attacks on scripture, which again, are just all over the place from different angles. And so they were talking about the authority of the word, and they were talking specifically about inerrancy. Well, why do you believe that the Bible is inerrant? And so you got these four pastor theologians, and they're all talking about it, and they asked this one guy named John Piper. John Piper's a former pastor in Minneapolis. Many of you read many of his books, and they asked him, why have you held on to this belief? Why do you believe the Bible's inerrant in, li- in light of har- hardly anyone in the culture and especially so many churches disregarding that truth? And, and you got to know about John Piper. John Piper uh, went to undergrad at Wheaton, a strong, strong Christian college, but definitely not a bastion of conservatism. So he had heard many of the arguments against the authority and sufficiency and, and inerrancy of Scripture. Then he went on to Fuller Seminary in California, which is not, again, not a conservative seminary. He had heard, heard them out. And then on top of that, he got his Ph.D. in Germany, University of Munich. Germany probably has no one that holds to an inerrancy. Protestant liberalism came over from Germany. So he had heard it. He was an educated guy. Dr. Piper, why do you hold to the inerrance of Scripture? You know what he said? First answer. Said more, but first answer, because my mama taught me to. Look at 2 Timothy 3.14. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood... You have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Look at chapter 1, verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And now I am sure dwells in you as well. 
Teach your kids a high view of the word. Mamas, do not underestimate the magnitude of your influence. Well, what about corporately? That's personally. What about corporately? What does a church look like that is ruled by God's word? Well, there's much we could say, but I think at the very least, it will be committed to the consecutive exposition of scripture. Now, topical sermons are okay on occasion. We're in one now, a seven-week one. But the main diet of the congregation ought to be the pastor just walking through books of the Bible. Letting God set the agenda for his church rather than the pastor's particular hobby horses or favorite verses or favorite themes. So if you're a guest here looking for a church, listen to these words. I shared this quote in our membership class from Pastor Mark Devery. He says, if you're looking for a good church, the role of the preacher of God's word is the most important thing to consider. I don't care how friendly you think the church members are. I don't care how good you think the music is. Those things can change. But... The congregation's commitment to the centrality of the word coming from the front, from the preacher, the one especially gifted by God, called to that ministry, is the most important thing you can look for in a church. Now, this is not about me. This is how I handle this book on this pulpit. This book and this pulpit will forever be here because this book stands between you and I. mediates our relationship with God. Right preaching and right teaching is the most important part of a healthy local church, which is why he says what he says in the next verse. Look at chapter four, verse one. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who's to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. There's nothing casual here. There's nothing inconsequential here. In light of his coming judgment, in light of the kingdom, what are you to do? Verse two, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Preach as a dying man to dying men. So we're committed to the preaching and teaching of this word in all of our ministries and especially here. But also we want to be a church corporately committed to passing this thing on. Passing the faith on. If this is the word of God, we must be zealously committed to passing it on, which we've seen. That's exactly what Timothy's mama and grandmama did, right? They passed it on. It's what the church needs to be doing. In fact, look at chapter 2, verse 2. Timothy, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. There's four generations right there. Paul to Timothy to faithful men to others also. What do we do? We guard this good deposit and we pass it on at every level of the local church. We're going to say more about that next week as we talk about disciple making. So what is scripture? It's a God-breathed book. What's scripture for? Salvation, teaching, reproof, correction, training in righteousness. What does scripture do? completes us and equips us for every good work. May we increasingly be a people who are ruled by God's word.